The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s. William James. William James was born in New York City on January 11, 1842. His father was a rich man who spent his time entertaining the intellectuals of his time and discussing the religious mysticism of Swedenborg. This wonderful atmosphere for a bright young boy was thanks to his grandfather, an Irish immigrant with a knack for real estate investment. William was soon joined by a younger brother, Henry James, who would grow up to be one of America's premier novelists. All of the James children were sent to European boarding schools and traveled through all of the great European capitals. At age 19, after a stint as an art student, William James enrolled at Harvard University in chemistry, which he soon changed to medicine. He was not really interested in a career in medicine either, but he wanted to study the science that went with it. In 1865, James took advantage of a marvelous opportunity to travel to the Amazon River Basin with the great biologist Louis Agassiz to collect samples of new species. While there, James began to suffer from a variety of health problems. In 1867, he went to Germany to study physiology under Hermann von Helmholtz. While in Germany, he befriended several notable early German psychologists, including Karl Stumpf. On the other hand, he had very little respect for Herbert Spencer, Wilhelm Wundt, G.E. Mueller, and others. In Germany, William James began to suffer from a serious depression, accompanied by thoughts of suicide. In addition, he had serious back pain, insomnia, and dyspepsia. In 1869, he came back to the United States to finish up his medical degree but continued to be plagued by depression. He had been reading a book by a French philosopher named Renouvet, and this book convinced him of the power of free will. Although many people, including Louis Agassiz, whom James came to dislike, were staunch determinists, James later said that his first act of free will was to believe in free will. And he decided to apply this idea to his own problems, and he seemed to improve. From 1871 through 1872, James was part of the Metaphysical Club, a group of Harvard graduates who met in Boston to discuss the issues of the day. Included in this club were the philosopher Charles Pierce, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Chauncey Wright. It was Wright who introduced the idea of combining Alexander Bain's concept of belief as the disposition to behave 
with Darwin's concept of survival of the fittest. In other words, ideas had to compete with each other, and only the best idea would last. And this is similar to a more recent idea called memes. It was Charles Pierce, on the other hand, who took Kant's idea that we can never really know the truth, that all of our beliefs are maybes, and turned it into the basis for pragmatism. Now, pragmatism is very similar to a philosophy of as-if that so influenced Alfred Adler and George Kelly. In 1872, having completed his medical degree, William James was appointed as an instructor of physiology at Harvard University. And in 1875, James taught his first course in psychology called Physiological Psychology, just like the name used by Wilhelm Wundt. And James later established a demonstration laboratory the same year that Wundt established his laboratory at Leipzig. As an interesting side note, James would later write that the first psychology class that he ever attended was the first one that he taught. In 1876, James became an assistant professor of physiology. In 1878, he married Alice Gibbons, a Boston school teacher, and she took particularly good care of him, and his depression lessened significantly. Despite his tender nature, he and Alice managed to raise five children together. Later that same year, he signed on with a publisher named Holt to write a psychology textbook. It was supposed to take James two years to finish this textbook. Instead, it took him 12. In 1880, his title was changed to Assistant Professor of Philosophy, which is where, in those days, psychology actually belonged. And in 1885, he became a full professor. Despite his battles with depression, he was well-liked by his student and known for his great sense of humor. Even his textbook would have a certain lightness that we rarely find in textbooks. He seemed to enjoy teaching, and his students seemed to enjoy his teaching. He was very popular as an instructor. On the other hand, he disliked research and did almost none of it. He said that laboratories were basically a waste of resources. In 1889, his title changed again, this time to Professor of Psychology. The next year, his book was finally published, two volumes to be exact, and it was titled The Principles of Psychology. This book went on to become the most popular psychology textbook in America and many students would simply refer to it as James. In other words, have you read James in referring to the principles of psychology? However, this book was enormous. So in 1882, he put out a shorter version, subtitled The Briefer Course, which students would refer to for the next 50 years as The Jimmy. Both of these books are masterpieces of prose and were extremely popular among students of psychology and laypersons alike. In fact, some have even suggested that of the two brothers, 
William James, and Henry James, that although Henry James was known as the author, that William James was actually the better author of the two. Now, despite James's dislike of research, he did raise money for a new and expanded laboratory at Harvard University, but promptly arranged to hire one of Wundt's students, Hugo Munsterberg, to be its director. James did not supervise many graduate students, but several were quite successful in their own right, including James Angel, Edward Thorndike, and Mary Calkins. Now, Mary Calkins, incidentally, was the first woman to complete the requirements for a PhD in psychology at Harvard. Unfortunately, however, she was denied the degree because, get ready, she was a woman. She later became the first woman president of the APA. She later went on to become the founder of the psychology program at Wellesley College. Now, the official reason why she was never granted the Ph.D. was because she was never officially enrolled at Harvard University. However, she could not enroll at Harvard University because at the time, women were not allowed to enroll as students. So, although she studied under James and Munsterberg at Harvard and completed all of the requirements that would grant a man the Ph.D., she was not granted the degree. After her death... Students appealed to Harvard to grant her the Ph.D. posthumously, and Harvard turned her down again. William James had always shared his father's interest in mysticism, even psychic phenomena. This has dampened his reputation among hardcore scientists in the psychological community, but it has only endeared him more to the public. In 1897, he published The Will to Believe, and in 1902, Varieties of Religious Experience. But William James was never completely comfortable with being a psychologist. In fact, he preferred to think of himself as a philosopher. He is, in fact, considered America's greatest philosopher, in addition to being the father of American psychology. He was profoundly influenced by an earlier American philosopher, Charles Sanders Peirce, who founded the philosophy of pragmatism. Pragmatism says that ideas can never be completely proven true or false. So, we should look at how useful an idea is, how practical it is, how productive it is. James called this the cash value of an idea. William James popularized pragmatism in his books, like the book Pragmatism in 1907 and The Meaning of Truth in 1909. In 1909, he also wrote A Pluralistic Universe, which was part pragmatism and part an expression of his own beliefs in something not unlike Spinoza's pantheism. William James retired from teaching in 1907 because his heart was not what it used to be, not since a mild heart attack in 1898 when climbing in upstate New York. He did meet Sigmund Freud when he came to visit Boston in 1909 and was very much impressed by the famous psychoanalyst. The next year, James went to Europe for his health and to visit his brother Henry, but soon returned to his home in New Hampshire. 
two days later, on August 26, 1910, he died in his wife Alice's arms. Several of his works were published posthumously, including Some Problems in Philosophy in 1911 and the magnificent Essays in Radical Empiricism in 1912. James's most famous students included John Dewey, the philosopher often considered the father of modern American education, and Edward Thorndike, whose work with cats opened the door to the behaviorists. Functionalism Functionalism as a psychology developed out of pragmatism as a philosophy. To find the meaning of an idea, you have to look at its consequence. You have to see where it leads. So truth is what is useful, practical, pragmatic. This led William James and his students toward an emphasis on cause and effect, prediction and control, and observation of environment and behavior over the careful introspection of the structuralists. Pragmatism blended easily with Darwinism. To understand an idea, you ask, what is it good for? In other words, what is the function in the organism for this idea? What is its purpose in an ecosystem? How does it add to a creature's chances of survival and reproduction? Some aspects of functionalism were clearly just anti-structuralism, a reflection perhaps of James's impatient with details and his poor grasp of the German language. In particular, he felt that the structuralists were ignoring the whole and paying too much attention to the tidbits. The anti-structuralism of later functionalists was based more on Titchener's inaccurate interpretation of Wundt's work rather than on Wundt's work itself. Emotion An example of functionalist thinking can be found in William James's view of emotions. This is called the James Lang Theory. It was originally named for William James, but later it was discovered that another psychologist in Denmark had come up with pretty much the same theory at about the same time. But here is the theory in James's own words. Our natural way of thinking about these standard emotions is that the mental perception of some fact excites the mental affection called the emotion and that this latter state of mind gives rise to the bodily expression. My thesis, on the contrary, is that the bodily changes follow directly the perception of the exciting fact, and that our feeling of those same changes as they occur is the emotion. Common sense says we lose our fortune, are sorry, and weep. We meet a bear are frightened and run. We are insulted by a rival, are angry and strike. 
The hypothesis here to be defended says that this order of sequence is incorrect. That the one mental state is not immediately induced by the other. That the bodily manifestations must first be interposed between. And that the more rational statement is that we feel sorry because we cry. Angry because we strike. Afraid because we tremble. And not that we cry, strike, or tremble because we are sorry, angry, or fearful, as the case may be. Without the bodily states following on the perception, the latter would be purely cognitive in form, pale, colorless, destitute of emotional warmth. We might then see the bear and judge it best to run, receive the insult, and deem it right to strike but we could not actually feel afraid or angry. To begin with, readers of the journal do not need to be reminded that the nervous system of every living thing is but a bundle of predispositions to react in particular ways upon the contact of particular features of the environment. As surely as the hermit crab's abdomen presupposes the existence of empty whelk shells somewhere to be found, so surely do the hound's olfactories imply the existence, on the one hand, of the deer or fox's feet, and on the other, the tendency to follow their tracks. The neural machinery is but a hyphen between the determinate arrangements of matter outside the body and determinate impulses to inhibition or discharge within its organs. When the hen sees a white oval object on the ground, she cannot leave it. She must keep upon it and return to it until at last its transformation into a little mass of moving, chirping down elicits from her machinery an entirely new set of performances. The love of man for woman, or the human mother for her babe, our wrath at snakes and our fear of precipices may all be described similarly, as instances of the way in which peculiarly conformed pieces of the world's furniture will fatally call forth most particularly mental and bodily reactions, in advance of, and often in direct opposition to, the verdict of our deliberate reason concerning them. The labors of Darwin and his successors are only just beginning to reveal the universal parasitism of every creature upon other special things, and the way in which each creature brings the signature of its special relations stamped on its nervous system with it upon the scene. Whistling to keep up courage is no mere figure of speech. On the other hand, sit all day in a moping posture, sigh, and reply to everything with a dismal voice, and your melancholy lingers. There is no more valuable precept to moral education than this. As all who have experience know, if we wish to conquer undesirable emotional tendencies in ourselves, we must assiduously and in the first instance cold-bloodedly 
go through the outward motions of those contrary dispositions we prefer to cultivate. The reward of persistency will infallibly come. In the fading out of the sullenness or depression, and the advent of real cheerfulness and kindliness in their stead. Smooth the brow, brighten the eye, contract the dorsal rather than the ventral aspect of the frame, and speak in a major key. Pass the genial compliment, and your heart must be frigid indeed if it does not gradually thaw. As you listen to the words of William James, Think about the ideas that have been expressed. In the first paragraph, note the holistic idea that emotion is nothing without the body. In the second paragraph, he points out that emotion has an evolutionary purpose. And in the third paragraph, James emphasizes a practical application of his theory. habit. From an historical perspective, it was William James's emphasis on habit that ignited the interest of his followers and paved the road for the development of American behaviorism. Here again is William James in his own words. When we look at living creatures from an outward point of view, one of the first things that strike us is that they are all bundles of habits. In wild animals, the usual round of daily behavior seems a necessity implanted at birth. In animals domesticated, and especially in man, it seems, to a great extent, to be the result of education. The habits to which there is an innate tendency are called instincts. Some of those, due to education, would be by most persons called acts of reason. It thus appears that habit covers a large part of life, and that one engaged in studying the objective manifestations of mind is bound at the very outset to define clearly just what its limits are. So nothing is easier than to imagine how, when a current once has traversed a path, it should traverse it more readily a second time. But what made it traverse it the first time? In answering this question, we can only fall back on our general conception of a nervous system as a mass of matter whose parts, consistently kept in states of different tension, are as constantly tending to equalize their states. The equalization between any two points occurs through whatever path may at the moment be most pervious. But, as a given point of the system may belong, actually or potentially to different paths, and, as the play of nutrition is subject to accidental changes, blocks may from time to time occur, and make current shoots through unwanted lines. Such an unwanted line would be a new created path, which, if traversed repeatedly, would become the beginning of a new reflex arc. All this is vague to the last degree, and amounts to little more than saying that a new path may be formed by the sort of chances that in the nervous material are likely to occur. But, vague as it is, 
it is really the last word of our wisdom on the matter. Habit is thus the enormous flywheel of society, its most precious conservative agent. It alone is what keeps us all within the bounds of ordinance and saves the children of fortune from the envious uprisings of the poor. It alone prevents the hardest and most repulsive walks of life from being deserted by those brought up to tread therein. It keeps the fisherman and the deckhand at sea through the winter. It holds the miner in his darkness and nails the countryman to his log cabin and his lonely farm through all the months of snow. It protects us from invasion by the natives of the desert or the frozen zone. It dooms us all to fight out the battle of life upon the lines of our nature or our early choice, and to make the best of a pursuit that disagrees, because there is no other for which we are fitted, and it is too late to begin again. It keeps different social strata from mixing. Already, at the age of 25, you see the professional mannerism settling down on the young commercial traveler, or the young doctor, or the young minister, or the young counselor at law. You see the little lines of cleavage running through the character, the tricks of thought, the prejudices, the ways of the shop. In a word, from which the man can by and by no more escape than his coat sleeve can suddenly fall into a new set of folds. On the whole, it is best that he should not escape. It is well for the world that in most of us, by the age of thirty, the character has set like plaster and will never soften again. Commonalities. Over the course of the last two lectures, we have learned about Wilhelm Wundt and voluntarism or structuralism, and about William James and functionalism. Although there are many differences, in reality, structuralism and functionalism were more like each other and different from modern mainstream psychology in that both were free-willist and anti-materialistic, and both considered the proper study of psychology to be the mind. Wundt wrote, Mind, intellect, reason, understanding are concepts that existed before the advent of any scientific psychology. The fact that the naive consciousness always and everywhere points to internal experience as a special source of knowledge may, therefore, be accepted for the moment as sufficient testimony to the right of psychology as a science. And William James wrote, There is only one primal stuff or material in the world, a stuff of which everything is composed. And we call that stuff pure experience. Both Wundt and James were empiricists and considered their psychologies experimental. Neither liked the rationalistic systems prevalent in the philosophy of their day, such as Hegel's grand system. However, neither were anything like what most people understand as experimentalists today, 
because neither of them were materialists or reductionists. Wundt wrote about materialism, If we could see every wheel in the physical mechanism whose workings the material processes are accompanying, we should still find no more than a chain of movements showing no trace whatsoever of their significance for the mind. All that is valuable in our mental life still falls to the psychical side. And James's friend and teacher, Pierce, also wrote about materialism. The materialistic doctrine seems to me quite as repugnant to scientific logic as to common sense, since it requires us to suppose that a certain kind of mechanism will feel, which would be a hypothesis absolutely irreducible to reason, an ultimate, inexplicable regularity. While the only possible justification of any theory is that it should make things clear and reasonable. And Mary Calkins, one of James's students, wrote about James's view of introspection. From introspection, he derives the materials for psychology. Introspective observation, he expressly asserts, is what we have to rely on first and foremost and always. As for the historical influential differences between Wundt and James, while Wundt focused on the introspection of consciousness, James focused on behavior in environment. This focus would lay the groundwork for a behaviorism that James would scarcely recognize. It would be nearly a century before research psychology would come back from a long sojourn in materialistic, reductionistic, quantitative, physiological, behavioristic methods to something that Wundt and James would recognize as psychology. <laughs>